You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera and everything in between, if you have a piece of hunting gear or a piece of hunting equipment that needs a battery, Interstate Batteries has got you covered. You can go to a local retail store or you can go visit online at interstatebatteries.com. They have thousands of local retail shops all over the U.S., so you can go there as well. Interstate batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome, folks, to the Freshwater Bite Podcast, your source for everything freshwater fishing. I'm your host, Lee Kleino, and on this podcast, you will hear from diehard anglers like yourself, the backstories of those anglers, techniques they use, gear reviews, and everything in between. So if you like fishing, turn it up, because this episode's about to kick off right now. the podcast thanks for being here i'm just pumped because i love fall so much if you're listening to this i hope you are too there's just so many activities to do so many things to do outside and this podcast episode is special because one i'm about to announce how you can qualify for a giveaway that i'm going to be conducting and then also this podcast episode is about the history of uh the salmon in the great lakes you know, I was doing these podcasts with salmon, talking about the salmon run this and that and having different guests on, you know, sharing a bunch of their knowledge. And I saw, I thought to myself, damn, you know, some folks listening to this might not know the history of salmon in the Great Lakes, why they were introduced and how their populations and things have changed throughout the year, over the years and the decades. And so I brought Jay Wesley on today from the Michigan DNR to talk about a little bit of that history. But before we get into that, in order to qualify for this giveaway, I'm giving away an ice rod from JT Outdoor Products. And it is going to be, I think I'm going to give away either one of their new 35 inch panhandlers with the built-in spring bobber right into the, the blank that they just released this week. And or I'm gonna give away a snare rod. And I hope you guys are pumped about that. This is something that I want to do to give back to the listeners. But in order to do so, you have to qualify for that. And the way you qualify for this giveaway is you have to go to the website, freshwaterbite.com, and you have to email me a question. And that will, and the, it has to either be a question and or a topic that you want to hear more about. And if you do so, and I put your name into a raffle and we, 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 we choose your name, you will get a brand new JT Outdoor Products ice rod and uh, get your ice fishing season started off right. So remember, go to freshwaterbite.com, email me a question and or a topic that you want to know more about, and you will be entered to win a brand new ice rod. And for all you Instagrammers out there, you can also just DM me your question or and or your topic on Instagram over at Freshwater Bite and Instagram, and I will enter you uh, using that as well. So without any further ado, let's get into today's episode with Jay Wesley from the Michigan DNR. Here's Jay. Hey, Jay, how's it going? It's Lee. Hey, Lee. How are you? Good. Is, is now okay? 
That's a, it's a great time. I'm happy we finally connected. <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? Like at the end of salmon season, we're finally connecting. <laughs> I know. So I apologize for that. Oh. My weekends get busy with family stuff, and I know you're busy during the week. Yeah, I trust me. It's it's probably definitely mostly my fault. So it's uh it, it's been crazy, but you know I think it's good because I really wanted to get you on the podcast to talk. Um, about salmon in the Great Lakes, just in general, because I was—I forget where I was. I was traveling for business or something like that, and someone was talking to me uh, about my weekend that, that that I was, you know, what I was going to be doing. And I said I was going to be salmon fishing, and they knew I was from Michigan. They're like, I had no idea that salmon was even in the Great Lakes. Wow. So you know, I mean, not to fault them, they didn't—they weren't an angler or anything like that. But you know, they just—you know—they were mentioning that you know they had, they always associate salmon with you know, being in the oceans and stuff like that. So, right. Right. But, uh, yeah. So if you just want to kind of introduce yourself and we'll just, you know, kind of go through it here and, uh, dive deep into salmon in the great lakes. Okay. Um, my name's Jay Wesley. I'm the Lake Michigan basin coordinator for Michigan DNR fisheries division. Okay. And how long have you been doing that? Oh boy. I've been doing this for 23 years. 23 years. It, it, it kind of like describe like what, what you're, you know, responsible for your daily or, you know, monthly, quarterly, whatever your activities are in, you know, in regards to uh, the Great Lake fisheries. Yeah. So I mainly cover Lake Michigan. So I work with the other states that also have jurisdiction over Michigan. So I'm constantly communicating with Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin, um, as well as five tribal nations that have angling rights to the 1836 treaty waters of Lake Michigan. Um, and what we do is uh, look at data from various agencies, from prey that's available in the lake to how different species are doing, like lake trout or salmon, and try to come up with some management strategies and adjust them annually to keep keep a good uh healthy population of fish and a good fishery out there now how does that work because i i would assume that other states have different wants or maybe quantities of salmon and different variable opinions of what a healthy population looks like do you guys just try to hash that out and come into an agreement on something or how does that work yeah so we um work under the Great Lakes Fishery Commission. Um, we all signed a uh, strategic plan to do a collaborative management of the Great Lakes. Okay. So how we do that is through what's called the Lake Michigan Committee. So all the states uh, and the five tribal nations are represented on that. And we share data on that committee. And then we try to develop management plans and strategies that kind of have more of a long-term vision so hopefully our we're all on the same page and then we can try to get our constituencies and stakeholder groups and angler groups on board with 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 what that vision is gotcha okay so let's kind of rewind and go back to the beginning just kind of like you know a, a brief summary of when and why salmon were introduced into the great lakes yeah, so we can go way back to 1876, and we actually started putting in steelhead, yeah. which was actually the first salmonid to be put in the Great Lakes, and they 
did okay or well um, ever since then. Um, we actually tried again in the early 1900s. We had some real small hatcheries, and they were experimenting with salmon. And at the time, they called them strawberry salmon, but they were basically a Chinook. And they stocked them like in the Dwajak River and the St. Joe River, but they never really took or went anywhere. But it wasn't um, until many years later. And basically, what happened with the Great Lakes um, is we started to have more connectivity to um, the rest of the world. And that was through building of canals to get shipping up into the Great Lakes. And by doing so, we, we created a connection between the oceans and the freshwater Great Lakes, which were never there before. We had what, what everyone knows is the Niagara Falls as a as a um, a barrier to fish movement. But by opening that up, we started to um, introduce accidentally invasive species, and sea lamprey were one of the the big ones. Um, they came in and they preyed upon our main predator in the lake, which was called a lake trout mm-hmm. and the lake trout populations crashed. Um, we had basically only commercial fishing going on in the great lakes and they overfished a lot of the, um, other species in the lake. So the commercial fishery was cl- collapsing. And then, uh, with no predators in the lake, a small silvery fish called the alewife came in through the, the well and canal, the, the route around Niagara Falls, and um, their populations just exploded in Lake Michigan and Huron um, to the point where people may remember, you know, in the 60s and 70s, these dead fish washing up on the beaches and requiring bulldozers and front-end loaders to, to scrape them off because there's just so many of them. Wow. So... So it was probably this it really reached a peak of um just a collapse fishery, I think in nineteen sixty six and Michigan, under the leadership of Howard Tanner, decided that we need to do something. we got to bring a fish species in a new predator that will eat these alewife um and create a new fishery um The commercial fisheries had gone down or were collapsing and there was interest in developing more of a recreational fishery. So 1966, coho salmon were stocked for the first time in the Platte River, and they've been a success ever since. Um, following that, 1968, Chinook salmon were stocked. And now we stock, you know, coho, Chinook, steelhead throughout, you know, most of Lake Michigan. Um, and they've really created... Uh, quite a fishery and they've also created you know a, a an economy right a stable economy around the the sports fishing so you know a lot of these yeah. a lot of these towns that you hear about like frankfurt ludington and things like that a lot of those areas from what at least what i read you know they exploded in the in the industry of you know sports fishing and um you know charter boats going out you know now you could pay to go out and get fresh salmon bring them home with you in the freezer and and eat fresh, you know, salmon for a few months. Yeah, a lot of these uh, port or coastal towns were either supported by commercial fishing back in the day, or they're industrial towns that you know a lot of the industry was pulling out. So the charter boat industry that started after this um, was huge, and it 
had attracted tourism. These became tourist destinations and, and continue to be. And yeah, hotels, restaurants, everything build up around this um, industry. And access sites were built, um, more boat launches, you know, access to piers became available. Um, so it was um, fish cleaning stations. So, yeah, it really ballooned up and, and has continued to stay quite vibrant in those communities. When when do you, or I'm sorry, when did they notice the impact of the salmon on the Elwise population? Like did, how, how many years or was it a certain amount of salmon species that, that had grown to, you know, a certain population size to, to really see the effects of them? It was almost immediate because um, these fish, as soon as they were stocked in the first few years, they're growing. Some of these coho within a year and a half are growing to 20 pounds. They are consuming a, just a ton of alewife. Yeah. Um, and as we studied or looked at the alewife population, we didn't really start studying alewife until the mid-70s, but um, it's been a steady decline ever since that time. Um, and as we we just continued to stock more Chinook and coho as we had hatchery space, and the more we stocked, the lower the alewife population got. Um but in the meantime, the fishery got better and better and better. So there's just a great demand to stock more and more and more. And we didn't realize that we had an issue until all of a sudden we had a die-off of salmon in the 1980s. And it was a result of a bacterial kidney disease. We found that the salmon were getting... Um, they just weren't growing well and their health wasn't good. And it's because they just weren't getting enough to eat. So we, we, that was basically the tipping point where we had too many salmon out there um, for the amount of alewife. And we finally realized, wow, this is not a endless resource. We've got to start understanding this uh, system and, and creating more balance between our predators out there and the prey, of, prey that's available. Right. So, so you, you know, you took care of one problem almost too good. And now everyone's so used to the salmon being there and it's so, uh, you know, plentiful and everyone enjoys fishing for salmon. And, you know, a lot of those port towns rely on that tourism and charter boats and stuff like that. Now you got to figure out a way of, you know, balancing, balancing it back out and keeping your, your, your fish species, you know, healthy. Right. And so we had to make a, un, a, an unpopular choice in the nineties to actually start reducing salmon stocking. And that was very unpopular. Um, and I think the first time we finally were able to do it was in 1999. Um, we did it again in 2003. And what was amazing is that the salmon population continued to increase even with decreased stocking. And we started to realize that, um, not only did we have fish that we stocked, like from our hatchery system, we were noticing quite a lot of wild fish, like these salmon, which we didn't think we were going to reproduce in the Great Lakes, started to find uh, good streams to spawn in, and um, all of a sudden wild Chinook salmon became an issue as well. So now we had to monitor how much wild fish we had out there. So we were kind of in a race to the bottom really since 1999 trying to figure out how we get this balance 
with wild fish out there and decreasing alewife. Um, we had another invasive species come in um, in the 2000s. It was the zebra mussel mm-hmm. and, and followed by the quagga mussel. And they filtered out all the good nutrients and algae out of the lake, which lowered the capacity for alewife. So we had to adjust predators again after that. So it's been a crazy roller coaster trying to maintain balance. But uh, we certainly have because we've seen, you know, the salmon cycle, like they were at a low point in the 80s, back up high in the early 2000s, kind of went down again, peaked again in 2012. And now they're down again in the last five years, but starting to rebound. So yeah, I we're think kind of in a, in a cycle. <laughs> I think that's the, the the most underst or misunderstood part about your guys's job, and probably to the public too, the anglers, the passionate anglers out there, they're always thinking like the DNR are you know, you know, making decisions and and not listening to the anglers and things like that. And obviously, just like you know, the council that you're on dealing with other states and tribes and everything like that, there's a balance, and you guys got to figure out a solution and how to you know make it healthy for everybody, but you know, like you said, in 2012, you've seen a, a, a decline and, you know, you guys were um, starting to, to to pull back on the stocking because you're seeing such wild, or you're seeing natural reproduction in, in the rivers and things like that increasing. So I think that's very misunderstood in the general public with why, you know, if you guys come out with an article or you state that you're not stocking as many salmon this year, everyone freaks out and starts, you know, getting upset and angry about it without really knowing the entire backstory of, um, you know, the the incline and decline of the the salmon populations throughout the decades. Right. Um, it's kind of interesting. We were celebrating the 50th anniversary of salmon stocking in the Great Lakes, and our our chief um, Jim Dexter had mentioned during the ceremony that. Um, this is kind of a, a unique thing. We're celebrating, the, you know, the 50th anniversary of stocking, and we may get to a point where we don't have to stock um, the lakes anymore. They will be wild. And some of the public picked up on that as if we were um, uh, not interested in salmon anymore in the Great Lakes, and we were trying to just uh, eliminate all hatchery stocking, and that just wasn't the case. It was just a realization that these things are adapting to freshwater, the Great Lakes. There are, our rivers are cleaning up. We're removing barriers in our rivers and dams. They're finding habitat to spawn in. So what what we thought was maybe a good message was actually twisted into, oh, my gosh, Michigan's not going to stock salmon anymore. They're just going to totally eliminate the program. So yeah. it's, it's hard to get the message across that, you know, we got to constantly adjust to, to keep the balance out there, and and things change. Um, things have changed so much just since my career, and it's just hard to keep up with it all. So, yeah, and, and, and you know, getting into a little bit of what you were just saying right there, one of my questions was going to be why have the Chinook and things like that taken off so well? Like you said, in natural reproduction over the past few years. And you kind of alluded to it a little bit in what you just said there. Is it because the rivers are cleaning up and things like that? Yeah, I think it's a, a couple of things. Um, one is is the rivers have cleaned up. Um, I would say when they were first introduced in the 60s 
and through the seventies, early eighties, um, we were discharged. I mean, most cities were discharged in, um, untreated sewage into most of our main river systems. Industry was, uh, just whatever waste they had. It just, it went into the river and went somewhere. Um, no one really understood what was going on. We had, you know, farmers farming right up to the river edge, so lots of sediment. So Clean Water Act in, in the 1970s changed a lot of that, um, where you had to treat your discharge. We were concerned about pollution. Um, there were a lot of programs to work with agriculture to keep sediment out of our streams, work with, you know, construction sites to keep sediment from, from eroding out into our streams. And I think it all started to come together in the late 80s, early 90s, and the 2000s. We started to see this um, kind of explosion of wild fish. Um, it, and it didn't just occur in Lake Michigan. We saw it in Lake Huron and, and some of Ontario's um, streams of Lake Huron, tributary to Lake Huron. So it was happening everywhere. And along with that, Michigan had a pretty strong program of dam removal and, and construction of fish ladders, which, which gave access, more access to streams and rivers for the salmon. So um, now Michigan, most of our anglers, what they catch is 80% wild. And I would say lake-wide, we're typically around anywhere from 60 to 70 to 80% wild fish in the entire Lake Michigan. Wow, really? 80%? So you're, you have an 80% chance of catching a wild fish compared to what you guys are stocking? Yep, especially wow. on the Michigan side. Yep. And that's based on, you know, mass marking. So we we work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to adipose stem clip all Chinook salmon that are stocked in Lake Michigan. So that's been really useful for us to help track that. Uh, here's a question that I have, and this is just, you know, over the years, you, you, you read how great the salmon population was once on, you know, Lake Huron and things like that. And then there was a, there was a crash and it seemed like Lake Michigan now is, you know, really dominant and, and still dominant for the salmon. Can you shed some light on like why the fishery in, uh, on the Lake Huron side didn't do as well? Or it, or it crashed? Yeah, I think um, part of it, just like what was happening, they were following the same pattern as Lake Michigan. They had bacterial kidney disease just like Lake Michigan, and we both, both lakes understood that it was a predation thing. Okay. Um, and so both lakes were reducing stocking. Um, then, you know, we... We kind of got zebra mussels coming in, so things started to change. And I think there, what most researchers believe is that there was just a huge insurgence of wild fish coming out of Canadian uh, streams of Lake Huron that totally flooded the system and basically wiped out the alewife. Okay. And before they could change anything or react, you know, the alewife were pretty much gone. And once that happened, um, native species like walleye and um, lake trout actually exploded. That the, the alewife were more of a detriment to those um, um, native species. So now all of a sudden, lake trout are naturally reproducing and surviving well. 
same with walleye. And so before any changes to salmon or anything could be made, you got these other predators coming up um, through the system doing well. And um, alewife just have never been able to recover because because of the amount of lake trout and walleye in that system. Okay. And the also there's there's also been the introduction of Atlantic salmon too on kind of like up on the St. Mary's River and, and and over in that area too and some inland lakes, also in the northern lower part of uh, Michigan as well. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the introduction of Atlantics? Yeah, so Atlantics have been here a while. I can't remember the date when they were brought in, but they're primarily raised at a hatchery. Um, run by Lake State University, okay, up on up on um, the St. Mary's River, yep. And so most of them were always stocked there. A uh, small portion would go to Torch Lake, which is um, in Upper Michigan, and that's basically what we had um, since the, um, I guess, change or if you want to call it a crash, in Lake Huron. There's been interest to try to diversify that fishery and the thought was that Atlantics might be a good fish to try they're um they have a very diverse diet so they're not going to be keyed in on one particular prey fish like an alewife they'll eat alewife smelt there's um they'll eat bloater chubs sticklebacks bugs on the surface um and even gobies on the bottom so the thought was that they could bring in a different fish to add diversity to the fishery that would um, intermix with the fish that are there and, and be able to find um, prey items to eat. So that's been experimental, and um, we've expanded Atlantic production and some of our state fish hatcheries and um, doing the best we can, but we just can't produce a product that's as good as what Lake Superior State can produce. We're, we're trying, we're getting better, but the water um, quality coming out of Lake Superior that feeds that hatchery up there is just, Superb. Um, it's much better than yep. what we can produce in our hatchery. That so seems to be just what the Atlantics want. So. Now, can the Atlantics, or maybe Lake State would know, or you know, would have better data on this, but how is their natural reproduction compared to what the Chinook and the Coho are doing? Um, from what I can tell, it's very low. Okay. There's not much natural reproduction happening, and usually the fisheries that we see or the fish that we see are, are hatchery-raised. Okay. We're not we're not seeing them expand in rivers or anything like that. So. Okay. All right, and then, you know, this time of year, you know, we're, we're kind of at the later end of it, but, you know, it's still going on, the the quote-unquote salmon run that a lot of folks hear about and, and what they do. Can you just kind of go through the process for anyone listening to this, even if they're, you know, they live in the state of Michigan and they're, they're just not familiar with the salmon run this time of year and what the salmon are doing? Yeah. So I will talk a little bit more about their life history. So... Chuck salmon um, are the easiest. Um, they, the adult salmon spawn in the fall um, in gravel beds and, and rivers. Those eggs stay in the gravel through most of the winter and then hatch in the spring. And then those smolts out migrate typically in May, 
sometimes as late as June. And those salmon then stay kind of in the river mouths or along the beaches of Lake Michigan for about a month until they're big enough to start feeding on small um, prey fish like alewife. And then um, they basically stay in the lake for anywhere from one to five years, but typically only two to three. While they're in the lake, they're, they're feeding heavily on alewife. Anglers are fishing for them and catching them. But uh, then they eventually mature, and most of our salmon mature about anywhere from age two to age four. Um, and when they mature, they start heading back typically to where they're either stocked or where they um, were naturally reproduced. So they kind of hone in on these river systems and migrate. Um, into the river mouths and eventually upriver, and they're basically looking for good gravel habitat to make reds and spawn again and start the life cycle over. So this time of year, um, it's kind of a fun time for anglers that don't have big boats or boats at all. They can they can go to a, a river that's got salmon and either wade or um, fish offshore and and catch these these salmon so brings out a lot of excitement um uh, to some of these river areas yeah i I would say anybody listening to this is probably your best chance to hook into probably the one of the most powerful fighting fish in a very narrow stretch of water and you don't have to have a big boat to do so and a lot of the times you snap off and break off more than you you bring them in, but like just the lightning at the under, other end of the line and you know attached to your rod is is quite the ride ride and what a lot of people you know go crazy for this time of year. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, most of the time these fish are you know around fifteen pounds or so on average, um, and really rip out some line. Um, the last couple of years we're seeing these fish, these chinook coming in that are 20 pounds, several 30 pounders, and some of them pushing 40 pounds. So you get a 30 pound fish in a river system where there's current and logs and all kinds of things that they can get wrapped around. It's, it's just a hoot to get one on and then to try to keep it on and land it. It's just crazy. So a lot of fun. So, you know, this time of year too, obviously you're going to, the, the salmon are going to look a lot different than when you catch them out in the big water compared to the river. Is that just because of their, their maturity and they're obviously going up spawn or going up to spawn and kind of at the end of their lifespan? Yeah, it's so salmon, um, you know, as they're feeding out in the lake, they're getting a lot of nutrients. They stay a more of a silvery color. Once they a switch goes off that they're going to spawn that year and they're mature. They really stop feeding or or decrease their feeding and they start using up um, all the energy they have and their fat cells and their protein and their muscles to make that run up, up river and to mature their eggs. So they, they change to what a I'd call a beautiful silvery color to more of an olive green to almost a brown to sometimes close to black color as they make their way upriver um, and start spawning. And basically, they're going to spawn and die. So that's just their body kind of deteriorating, putting all their energy just in the natu- into reproduction. And then once that's done, they they perish. So. 
Yeah, it's like one of nature's wonders, you know, like if, in, in the wild and some of the things that you see on like, you know, Discovery Channel or whatever, you know, they go from the ocean and they make this treacherous journey up the rivers and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot, you know, scientists are always trying to explain on how they go to the same river where they were hatched and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's pretty amazing to watch like a documentary on it and to now have that uh, somewhat similar uh, kind of run here in the Great Lakes is is pretty awesome to have. And I think a lot of folks don't realize how special um, the Great Lakes are and what, what we have here in our in our streams and lakes. Right. Um, when you're out, out west or in Alaska and these salmon are coming in, pretty much, you know, all the bears and eagles, everything is keying in on that. And they all take advantage of that protein and nutrients coming up river. In Michigan, we we don't necessarily have had that adaptation where we have a lot of, you know, bears keying in on it or eagles, but we certainly are fish in our systems have keyed in on it. We actually see our brown trout and even steelhead coming into some of these rivers to eat the eggs from these Chinook. So they obviously, resident fish benefit from these salmon being in the system because it adds a lot of nutrients and eggs that they otherwise wouldn't have there to eat so um, pretty amazing yeah this time of year especially I've I've noticed the more I fish the rivers and uh, you know being in northern Michigan you're starting to see and catch more brown trout at during you know this time of year which is something that I've actually seen the numbers you know go up over the years yeah and then a a great bait to use is is, um, people call it spawn or egg uh, they, they tie these bags full of salmon eggs, and you can put that on a hook and, and run it on the bottom of the stream or under a bobber. You know, you can possibly catch another Chinook or salmon. Um, you could catch a steelhead or a brown or a brook trout because they're all keying in on these eggs um, in the river system, and they're full of nutrients. So, um Pretty pretty neat way, and in more modern times, people are using beads that actually look like a salmon egg. So, yep, this is the time of year to use that kind of uh, bait. Uh, looking kind of like the overall uh, the Great Lakes, uh, there's been a huge focus more on lake trout kind of making a comeback, which um, is discouraging to some folks. To me personally, I. I, I, I like it and I would like to see, you know, a, a true balance, which is going to be obviously hard to, to ever get to with no matter what species you, you have in the Great Lakes. But can you talk a little bit about the, the, the resurgence of, or I guess the focus on lake trout being, um, you know, considered as a great sport fish in, in the, in the, in the Great Lakes? Yeah. And it, it goes back really before, uh, salmon reintroduction, you know, lake trout were our primary predator fish in Lake Michigan. Um, you know, they were harvested by commercial fishers, and there's a whole history of Michiganders eating their meat. You know, smoked uh, lake trout along with whitefish was kind of the staple along along these coastal cities. But when they collapsed, um, there's there's been a constant effort to try to get their populations back ever since. I'd say since the 1950s, there's been multiple rehabilitation plans for lake trout. 
um, because it was our native um, predator species in a way. Um, it really wasn't until sea lamprey got under control um, through uh, chemical treatments of streams and um, you know trapping of sea lamprey. Once sea lamprey were under control, we started to see lake trout come back, and that was basically through federal stocking programs. Um, we started to understand better how you know lake trout reproduced and where. So we started stocking more on these historic reefs of where they used to spawn. And as alewife numbers declined, we started to actually see lake trout increase. And it it became kind of a nice balanced fishery for quite a while. I'd say through, you know, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, people could go out, catch a mixed bag of lake trout, uh, some big salmon, some coho, uh, steelhead, maybe a few browns. And so they were just part of the fishery. Um, more recently, since Chinook salmon numbers kind of went down in the last five years, you know, anglers were going out and, and catching more lake trout than they were these other species. And that some of them didn't like that, and some of them perceived that to mean that lake trout were way overabundant in Lake Michigan. Um, I wouldn't say they're way overabundant. They're probably no different than what their population was in the 1990s. They're just probably the most available fish right now. Um, um, but we do recognize, you know, angler attitudes and things. Um, we are seeing some wild production of lake trout, which is good. The southern part of Lake Michigan, um, just in the last five years, we went from like just noticeable natural reproduction to 10% to I think we're about 30 to 40% wild fish in the southern part of the lake. Oh, so wow. The Lake Michigan Committee recognized that as well as changing attitudes about lake trout from anglers and um, began reducing stocking in the south. And right now, Michigan doesn't do any stocking um, south of Ludington. So that, that fishery now is going to go from a 100% stocked fishery to it's going to be migrating to more of a wild, almost 100% wild fishery in the next 10 years. So, um, lake trout, I think, get a bad rap. If you don't like lake trout, you're going to cause, call them boots, trash fish, or greasers. Yep. Um, and it's just unfortunate. Um, I mean, that some people's opinion. Um, if you haven't tried lake trout recently um part or most of their diet in the spring is these round gobies which is another invasive species um and then they switch over to alewife later in the summer but that goby diet has really changed the meat texture and color it their meat color is more like a salmon now it's got kind of a pinkish orangish color where it used to be white and i think it's much more lean than it used to be and it's one of the most delicious fish you can eat out of Lake Michigan now. So I, I had um, a, <clears throat> I had Bob Hines on here. Um, he's a buddy of mine up in Traverse City, and we talked about that. We tell, we had a whole episode on going for lake trout, and you know, kind of talked about the bad rap that it had, but also, you know, the lake trout that you know we've been catching out of um, the Grand Traverse Bays and things like that. I've even noticed that the the meat is very similar in in, in texture and color to to salmon and. To me, I think it tastes great. You know what I mean? I've even, 
you know, someone as picky as my wife, uh, she enjoys eating it as well. And, you know, can't really taste too much of a difference between that and the, and the salmon. And it's been definitely changing over the years and to bring awareness to it and, you know, to kind of get that stigma off that fish would be any, you know, angler, not, you know, taking, uh, you know, lake trout back to the, the dinner table is definitely missing out. Right. No doubt. And I think it's just, um, a lot of these anglers are fishing for them using salmon tackle. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously if you, you know, catch one on 300 foot of copper, um, it's way back there. It's not going to fight as well. And I, you know, I've caught lake trout and it, it's not fun really, you know, Lake trout, they hardly fight at all when they're on those long copper lines. But if you jig for them or use lighter tackle, they're they're a great fighting fish um, using the right techniques. So you just can't trolling for them with heavy tackle. They're no fun at all. But jigging or trolling with light tackle, they they're a lot of fun to catch. Oh, yeah, of course, jigging for them is a sm- blast. Yeah. Absolutely. And then these smaller fish are really good to eat. So, yep. Just one more question, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll let you go. If you were to give a a score or a rating on the balance of the Great Lakes right now, what would you give it? And then the second part of the question is, what would you like to see the Great Lakes ten years from now, in regards to a balance of you know, something like you were just talking about with all the fisheries, the, um, you know, the salmon, lake trout, walleye, all that kind of stuff. What, wh- how is the state, how is it now? And then what, what would you like to see it in 10 years? Yeah. So if I had to use a 10 point scale, I think right now I would put it, um, probably as a six. Um, I think anglers would probably put it lower, maybe, a a three or a four, and I think they're using their historic knowledge of the lake or perceptions as their score, where things have changed so much in the lake and our productivity is so much different. Um, we're not going to be able to sustain the numbers we had in the in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So um, I score, you know, a six because we do have balance right now. The fish are very healthy. They're big there's just not as many and people are not happy that there's not as many, but, um, in terms of the health of the fishery, it is healthy and it's, it's where we should be. Um, I think it's going to get better. Um, I think the lakes are adjusting to the quagga and zebra mussels productivity should stabilize or at least come up some. And by doing so, we should be able to get, a little bit more um, balance in the predators and prey and have more stability. Um, It just seems like we've been on a roller coaster the last 10, 20 years of, you know, high populations of life, low populations of life. It'd be nice to see that stabilize. I also think um, what will help is more wild reproduction, and we're going to start seeing more wild steelhead, coho. You know, we already mentioned lake trout and, and Chinook, and as you have wild production and you can back off on hatchery stocking, the system can kind of balance itself. And um, problem with stocking is we have to try to study it and figure out when to increase or when to decrease. 
where Mother Nature and, and wild production can adjust it when it needs to. Um, so I think the future looks bright. We're going to have a nice, diverse Chinook, coho, steelhead, lake trout. Um, you know, Atlantics might be in there at some point. Um, it'll be a nice, diverse fishery. Um, it just may not be the numbers that people remember um, back in the day. Well, I think we're going to end it on that because that's a positive note in my book. I, The fact that we could maybe possibly get to the the potential of, like you said, being um, you know, naturally reproducing with all these these species of fish and to everything to be balanced would be a pretty cool accomplishment and something great to say about, you know, the state that we live in and the surrounding states that, that touch the great lake. So that's, I'm going to end it right there on that. So thanks Jay for, uh, for coming on the podcast and just explaining kind of the history and, you know, hopefully folks listening to this can, you know, be a little bit more knowledgeable about, you know, how the great lakes are doing and all the work and, you know, the balancing that goes into balancing fisheries, uh, throughout all the great lakes. So thanks for coming on the podcast. You bet Lee. Thank you. All right. There you go. Ladies and gents. That's Jay Wesley from the Michigan DNR. You know, after listening to that, I hope you guys, um, maybe have a better history lesson of the introduction of salmon into the great lakes and kind of the challenges that the, the salmon and the fisheries, you know, face on a year-to-year basis. Uh, you know, the numbers are going up, they're going down. You hear different things from, you know, the charter boat captains. You hear different things from the Michigan DNR. You hear different things from just everyday anglers like us and like how the populations are doing, what they're seeing. And, you know, it's tough because everybody has an agenda and everybody has, you know, their ideal uh, situation or ideal picture of how the Great Lakes uh, salmon fishery is balanced, right? In their eyes, it's it's either you know doing well, or it's it's average, or it's struggling. And you know, depending on who you talk to, it, that that opinion is going to just vary. That's just the scenario right now um, in in the Great Lakes. But after listening to you know Jay kind of shed a little bit more of light on the struggles that they face, and you know the populations and things like that, and where they get their data from, and how to make you know, um, a decision on how many salmon to stock. That's my, my hope is that you walk away a little bit more knowledgeable, uh, to have a, you know, an educated conversation about it with somebody, regardless of your opinion of, um, how you think the Great Lakes are doing, but it'll be interesting to see. I think it'd be awesome someday to get back to a naturally reproducing fishery. So that way maybe we won't have to have this debate and we just let nature run its course too. So, but in the meantime, you can run your course of heading on over to freshwaterbite.com and entering your question or topic to get submitted for your chance to win an ice rod from JT Outdoor Products. Remember to either write me an email and or DM me on uh, at Freshwater Bite on Instagram, or you can head over to the Freshwater Bite podcast page on Facebook as well and uh, you know write me a message on there as well to get entered to win this, uh, this giveaway. So in the meantime, folks, as always... Thank you for listening.